Vicki, thank you for that ministry, reminding, reminding us that indeed not only could they not keep him in the ground, but they could not keep him out of our heart. Gentlemen, I'm going to move this forward. That's all right. I feel like I'm too far away. That better? Good. I am so pleased to be here. You know, I was thinking before coming up, four months ago I was where I thought the happening place was. And Russell Moore came to inform me that the happening place was not on the east or in the east, but on the west coast in the form of the Master's College. And you know what? I think God, God would agree with that. This is the happening place and I'm pleased to be here. I've enjoyed being here. I appreciate how welcome you've made me feel. And except for you guys that keep beating to death my intramural team, taking no mercy, I've enjoyed it. You've made me feel welcome and I appreciate that. Thank you. Before we minister the word this morning, let us look to him who is the illuminator and the author of the word and invite him to give us his blessing and his direction this hour. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for the living Word of God. We thank you for its ability to affect and change our life. And we would ask today that you would help us to see and to understand. As we heard sung, there were many who saw and did not understand, for they could not. And Lord, we admit today that we cannot, apart from your Spirit, who enables us to understand truth. And I would pray that you would anoint, you would remove distraction, and help us to elevate the word which elevates you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we again focus our attention on our purpose statement. And I've asked Joel to put it up behind me so that we can see it. I think it's good that we take this time in the early part of our semester to analyze what it is we're here for and what it is we're about. You know, without purpose, it's like running a race without a goal. And without looking at our purpose and how we are going to get there, it's like running a race without a map. And here before you, you have what God has led our leaders to write as our purpose for existence. I want to call to your attention, why does the Master's College exist? Here we have it. The Master's College exists to advance the kingdom of God. I want to say to you this morning that it cannot fulfill its purpose unless we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture. We cannot realize our goal we cannot advance the kingdom of God unless we submit to the authority of Scripture. And this morning we're focusing our attention on that third or fourth phrase, submitting to the authority of Scripture. Why must we do that? Because it is the key to advancing the kingdom of God. I want to remind you that in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, the key to advancing the kingdom is through equipped men and women. And you'll notice in our purpose statement, it says that our key to advancing the kingdom is by equipping men and women for service in strategic areas of ministry and vocation. And I think that's biblical. That's Ephesians 4. Now, what is the key for equipping men and women? The key is the Word of God. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, we find a clear statement as to the relevance of the Scriptures and the performance of the task of equipping men and women to advance the kingdom of God. Paul says to Timothy in verse 16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Key word. The word is profitable. You see here in verse 16 when it says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, the word profitable means uniquely advantageous. There is nothing else like the Word of God that is able to perform the task to which it was called. Nothing in our life will do what God's Word will do, according to Timothy. What is it that God's Word will do? Verse 17, that the man of God may be thoroughly or completely adequate, equipped for every good work. The word good, agathos, means useful. Useful to the end for which it was designed. A useful work or a good work is a work that performs a task that is desired by the one who is authorizing the task. Now, I'm advancing the kingdom of whom? Of God. God would determine what tasks are useful. And it's as I submit myself to the authority of the Word, because it's uniquely advantageous to that end, that I am able to understand how I can be prepared and adequate for every good work. The word adequate means proficient, able to meet all demands. You know, if you and I want to be able to meet all the demands that are placed upon us to advance the kingdom of God, we've got to utilize the means or the instrument that God has provided for that end. And it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that it's the scriptures that are given to that end. How is it that the Scriptures develop this in us? How is it that they equip us? Well, look what it says in verse 16. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and uniquely advantageous. You know, the word uniquely advantageous, it's like the key in a door. A key is much more advantageous to get me through the door than some other way. I could use a chainsaw. I could use a crowbar. I could blow my way in by lowering my shoulder, but none of those ways is nearly as advantageous as using the key, is it? Now that's the idea that Paul is communicating here. The scriptures are uniquely advantageous. That doesn't mean that there is no other way, but the most unique and valuable and advantageous way is to use the scriptures. How do they do that? Notice what he says. It is profitable for teaching. The word here means doctrine, laying the foundations of life and service. How do the scriptures help us become equipped? They teach us how and why we're here. What is the groundwork, the basic doctrinal teachings that provide the foundation for my ministry? I have to know about God. I have to know about the way God works and the instruments that God has provided for the advancing of His kingdom. I've got to have doctrine and teaching, and that comes through the word. Secondly, not only is it doctrinal that doctrine that helps me achieve this end, but it's also the scriptures provide us the ministry of reproof. The word reproof means to call to light unseen sin and bring conviction. 
You know how the Bible equips us? It equips us by exposing us to things in our life that are displeasing to Him. It's like shining a flashlight on my inner man and revealing to me that, hey, there's something wrong, displeasing. Thirdly, the Scriptures equip us by not only teaching us the foundations for life and service and not only by exposing our sin and bringing conviction, but I find great encouragement in the third thing they do, they provide correction. The word correction is the flip side of reproof. You know what the word correction means? It means restoration and improvement. It's the restoration that comes when I, having been exposed to the Word of God and admit my error, it gives me the, the solution to the problem that it, it has exposed. See, not only does the Bible expose things in my life that are wrong, but it provides me the solution for dealing with that problem. Not only pointing it out, reproving me, bringing it to light, but also giving me a solution for that problem. Correction, improvement, restoring me to an upright posture is what the word literally means. How else does the word equip me? Lastly, Paul says, it equips me by training me in righteousness. The word training simply means discipline. Teaching me the how-tos of functioning in the spiritual realm so that I might advance the kingdom of God. That I might be equipped, adequate, proficient, prepared for every good work. How is it that the Bible changes my life? By teaching me foundational principles by correcting me and exposing the sin in my life, by showing me the solution to that, that I can have forgiveness of sin through, through Jesus Christ, and then ultimately by teaching me how to function, giving me methods and ideas and concepts whereby I can adequately advance the kingdom for which I've been called to do. Now, I want to argue this morning that the reason we ought to submit to the authority of Scriptures is, first of all, because it's the chief instrument for advancing the kingdom of God. There is no other. It's uniquely advantageous to that end. There's another reason, and this is where we're going to camp today. Why should we at the Master's College submit to the authority of Scripture? Because it's authoritative. Wow, profound. As it states in our thesis statement or our purpose statement, the Scriptures have authority. What makes something have authority? The word authority is rooted in the word strength. The root word for authority is strength or power. The definition of authority is having the legal right to make commands and enforce obedience to them. If I have authority, then I have power to make commands that you are obligated to obey. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I can remember back at Liberty, my first year there, we had, I, I was training to become an RA. I had applied and I was in the process of being trained. And they put me in the, a dormitory to be trained under another RA. His name was Milo Tokes. Now, Milo was about five foot two, 120 pounds soaking wet, and had a voice three or four octaves above most men. Milo talked like this. And he, they had the good insight and wisdom to place Milo in the football dorm. 
Good idea, right? And I can remember training under Milo. And every night I'd come over to his dorm and at Liberty we had quiet hours from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. Everything had to be quiet to facilitate studying in the hall or in the rooms. And I can remember coming down and all night long this high-pitched, shrill voice, Fellas, quiet down! Fellas! Fellas, I'm coming down if you don't quiet down. I mean, that's a little bit extreme, but that's his voice. I mean, here he is, 120 pounds, soaking wet, Milo shouting, fellas, quiet down. I want to ask you something. Do you think those guys quieted down? No way. Why? Milo had no power to enforce. A week later, this having gone on, I noticed Milo had recruited someone. Milo had recruited a fellow by the name of, get these names, Rupert Wright. True. Now there's something interesting about Rupert. Rupert was 6'6 and weighed 245. Rupert was an All-American NAIA defensive tackle. Rupert walked down the hall with Milo. When Milo said, fellas, get quiet, do you think they got quiet then? You guessed it, they did. Why? Because power must reside behind one who demands authority. One has to have power in order to exercise and enforce command. Furthermore, in the case of books, how do you determine a book's authority? Do you know that a book's authority is based on its authorship? You can hear the, the relationship there, authority and author. You see the word author in the word authority. A book's authority is based on its author. Does its author have the power to make and enforce commands? You know what else makes a book authoritative? Whether the author has expertise. Whether he knows what he's talking about. If I were to write a book, How to Win at Intramurals, nobody would buy my book. We're 0 and 2 or 1 and 2. We did win the other day in the rain. I don't have the essential ingredient for writing an authoritative work. I don't know what I'm talking about. Do you see the point? You must have expertise in order to write with authority. You must have power in order to write with authority. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does the Bible have an author who is authoritative by virtue of his power and of his expertise? Who wrote the Bible? Was it 40 men, herdsmen, kings, shepherds, scientists, doctors, traveling tent makers? Yes, they authored the book. But there was an author behind the author. The Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, who is that? It's God. Look at what we see here in verse 16 of chapter 3. How did the scriptures come? All scripture is inspired by God. The word literally means God breathed. For you Greek students, Theonoustos, Theo God, Noustos breathed. Literally coming out of the mouth of God is the Word of God, the Scriptures. Flip over with me to Psalm 33. Show you this word again in the Old Testament. Psalm 
Hebrew word translated by the Greek Septuagint. Theonoustos, we find in verse 6 of chapter 33, or the Psalm 33. Notice what David says. He said, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth the hosts of heavens were made. What does this tell us? It tells us that the same creative energy and power that resulted in the creative world around us, that other great book of God which reveals who He is, that same power, that same creative work was exercised in giving us the Scriptures. They were God-breathed. They were not just authored by 40 men with creative ideas and unique insights. They were inspired by God. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says, No scripture came of private interpretation or by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were borne along or carried by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit carried them along. The word carried is a sailing term. It means to be blown about like a boat would be without control. The writers of Scripture were men who were literally born, carried, as without their own individual control, to record the words and the thoughts of Scripture as God desired it. We call this doctrine the doctrine of inspiration. The activity of the Holy Spirit whereby He superintended over the human personality to such a degree that the words, the very words, would be His words. And that they would be recorded without error. The Scriptures, God breathed, having His authority. He is the author. 3,808 times in the Old Testament, the writers affirm, thus saith the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, cry out, O earth, the Lord speaks. Who is the author of Scripture? God is the author of Scripture. Now the big question, does the author, i.e. God, have authority? Does he have power to enforce commands? Does he have expertise in the areas his book addresses? Let's see. Turn with me over to Psalm 62. Is having all power enough power to make and enforce commands? Fifty-seven times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Almighty. Almighty simply means having all power. Psalm 62, verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that what belongs to God? That power belongs to God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, speaking in reference to Jesus Christ, it says, In Him, whom the Godhead dwelt bodily, in Him was all authority and power. He is the head of all rule and power because the Godhead dwells in Him. Does God have power? Yes, He's the almighty power. He has all power to do all things. I would suggest to you that that's enough power to make and enforce commands. Is God an expert 
Does God know what He's talking about in the areas in which the Word addresses? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah the prophet records some truth here. He says in the latter portions of chapter 40, he says, To whom then can we liken God, or what likeness can we compare with Him? And he extrapolates some of those qualities that God so evidently exudes. He says in verse 12 of chapter 40, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? And who has marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the, the dust of the earth by the measure? and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Now notice verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding, and taught Him in the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? Isaiah the writer is asking what is called a rhetorical question. What do rhetorical questions do? They provide obvious answers. What is the obvious answer to this question? Who has counseled God? Who has given Him direction and understanding? The obvious answer? Nobody. Because in and of Himself, He knew all things about all things. One writer has put it this way, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters. He knows all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures. He knows all law and every law. He knows all relations. He knows all causes. He knows all personalities. He knows all feelings. He knows all mysteries. He knows all unuttered secrets, all thrones and dominions, all things invisible in heaven and in earth. God knows all things. He is an expert in all areas. I think sometimes we forget when we come to the Scriptures that when we are reading this book, that therein lies the authority of one who knows everything about everything. It's not like I as a college student at the Master's College is going to encounter some circumstance or some personality that he doesn't know about. He knows how you feel. He knows how they feel. He knows how personalities act. He knows all of the different derivatives of circumstance that might result from your situation. I would say to you that the Scriptures are authoritative because God has the power to make and enforce commands and because He has the expertise available to write with knowledge on all areas. Why should I submit to the authority of Scripture? Because it's authoritative. Not only because it advances the kingdom of God, which is God's purpose. But you know, just because the Bible has authority, I need to submit to it. Because God is powerful. He is the author who has power and expertise. Now you say, Harry, that's fine and good, but you've reasoned internally to the Scriptures. Everything you have said has been drawn from the book regarding the book. And that's circular reasoning, isn't it? How about some proofs external to the Word? Is there anything you could show me that gives evidence from the Word or about the Word 
that would convince me that the Bible has authority? Let me suggest a few. Not only should I submit to the authority of Scripture because it advances the kingdom and because it has an author who is authoritative, but you know that the Bible has authority because it is confirmed by its contents. Let's take prophecy, for example. The Bible makes many, many prophecies said of old time about things which will occur in a future time. Let's take one, prophecies regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There are 333 individual prophecies that apply to Jesus Christ. What do you think the probability would be that all of those things would come true? One chance out of 83 billion, if it was going to happen by accident, if it was not by design. Let's add prophecies of the Messiah with prophecies in reference to nations like Edom and Israel. Now we have two or three things that could happen. Could someone make a prophecy regarding three different things in a specific way and have those things happen? What are the chances? What is the probability? One chance out of two quintillion. I see, man, I don't even know how many zeros that is. Let me give you an illustration of what the probability would be that it would happen by chance. If we were to pile silver dollars all over the state of Texas, 35 feet deep, blindfolded someone and put an X on one silver dollar, their chance of pulling the silver dollar blindfolded with the X on it out of the pile of 35 foot deep silver dollars is one chance in two quintillion. Not high probability, is it? And yet I would say to you that we have authoritatively documented over 333 fulfilled prophecies on the Savior, several more prophecies fulfilled regarding nations and kingdoms. And I would say to you that this did not happen by chance, but it happened because there is authority and proof in the Word of God. How do I know the Bible's authoritative? Not only because its author is, but because the contents of the book suggest it is. What other book can you read that makes such prophecies and has such credibility? Do you know that the Bible speaks on issues of history and science and has never found, in spite of all of our technology and newfound knowledge, been found to have error in it? Do you know the Bible was talking about the laws of hydrology and how the earth rotates the water through the, the cycle of, of, of nature? How that it goes into the ground and comes up to the sky in the form of vapor and then it drops to the earth again? Do you know David and his comrades were talking about that cycle long before we had ever discovered it? The Bible has authority. Because its author is authoritative and because its contents communicate that it does. One other ground for authority is if you adhere to the contents of a book and it produces what it promises to produce. How many diet books are there on the market? Hundreds, right? You know, Franny Farnsworth string bean diet. Lose 20 pounds in two weeks. Dr. Atkins carbohydrate diet, lose 30 pounds in a month, guaranteed or your money back. I mean, over and over again, we, we encounter books that promise things. 
Now, if we adhere to the contents or the principles in that book and that book does not produce, what does that mean about the authority of that book? doesn't have it, right? So if I apply the principles of a diet book and it doesn't work, it doesn't have authority. Same rule applies to the Scriptures. If I apply the principles of the Word in my life and it produces the things that the Word promises, then by external proofs, I have shown the book to be authoritative, have I not? I want to ask you something. In your life, when you've confronted your life with the Scriptures, and you've obeyed its principles, has it not shown itself to be true? When you confessed your sin as it requires, and believed in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, did you not realize the forgiveness of sins and the sense of peace that the Bible promises? I did. Augustine, back in the 4th century, caught up in tremendous sin, said, when I encountered the Word, it set me free. Now, does it say somewhere in the Bible that if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed? You see, when I apply the principles of the Word in my life, it confirms its authority because it works. When I document the prophecies of the Word and the things that it says and find them to be true, I realize there that this book has authority. And when I admit in my heart that the author was God, divinely controlling the writers to write without error, writing His revelation that it's God who speaks to me with all of His authority and with all of His power and expertise, then I have to admit and cry out that the Scriptures have authority. And if the Scriptures have authority, I have but one thing to do, and that is to submit. You know what the only thing you can do to an admitted authority that is proper is to submit? The improper thing is to rebel. The improper thing is to ignore the commands. The only proper response to submitting or to, to the authority of the word is to submit. What is submission? In closing, let's be practical. What does it require of me if I acknowledge before God that in my heart I know that this book, by virtue of its author, has authority and control over my life? What does that require of me? It requires submission. What does submission mean? The word submit. Sub means under. Mitter means to place or to put. Submit means to put or to place myself under the object which is authoritative. If as a Christian I acknowledge and admit that God has given me authoritative word from Him, I must put myself under that authority and obey it. Four things we must do in order to obey the word. Number one, if I submit... I must expose myself to the scriptures. I must read them. Is it not the height of hypocrisy to, to admit that the word is given by God? It's authoritative. It's his. He's given me directions for life and service, for advancing his kingdom. And then I ignore it. I leave it on my shelf, unread, unexamined. 
You see, if I'm submitting, I must read it. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, study to show yourself approved, a workman. Remember, we're workmen advancing the kingdom, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word study means to put forth every effort to the point of pain. And I want to ask you, do you, as a young person admitting the Bible has authority in your life, put forth every effort to the point of pain to understand and know its truth? You must, if you're to submit. Secondly, not only must I expose myself to its truth, but I must submit by examining my opinions, my preconceptions, my convictions in light of it, and be willing to change. You see, a lot of us have come to the Master's College with a lot of excess baggage. Things that we believe to be biblical that may not be. Some of us have come to the Master's College with convictions that aren't at all biblical. Some of us have come to the college with no convictions when we should have them. And if I am really submissive to the Word, I have got to be willing to examine my opinions and my convictions in light of the Word. You know, anybody can give their opinion. I can go down to Joe's Bar and Grill and get an opinion. I can give you my opinion and you may respect me and you may like me, but you know what? My opinion doesn't hold water. What matters is, does God's Word support my opinion and my view? And unless it holds up to the authority and the test of Scripture, I have no right holding such a view. Fair enough? Why? Because it's the Bible that has authority, not me. The only authority that I have is as the Word has it through me. Third, thirdly, not only must I expose myself to its truth, not only must I examine my opinions and convictions in light of it, but thirdly, I must submit my experience to the Scriptures. We have a tremendous movement in Christianity today that's built on an experience. A lot of you may have felt things as a Christian. And our temptation is to want to interpret our spirituality by the way we feel. Do you know sometimes you don't feel saved? Have you ever been so down, so discouraged, so bummed out, that if I was queried on the question, am I saved by the way I feel, I'd have to say no. I don't know the peace that surpasses all comprehension. I don't have that sense and feeling as though that in my heart everything's okay. But you know what? Even if my experience says one thing and that differs from the Scripture, I've got to submit my experience to the Scripture. But you say, I've had a radical experience in my Christian life and it's really been good, it's encouraged me. And I want to say it doesn't matter what you experience, what matters is, is it authoritatively documented in the Word. I'm a private pilot. One of the things you learn as a private pilot is that when you are in the air flying in heavy, dense cloud cover, you must be faithful to abide by what you read on your instruments. There is something that pilots experience called vertigo, very dangerous phenomena. The phenomena is, is that when, I'm get, when I get clouded over and I cannot see, I have no point of reference. There is no horizon to give me direction regarding my configuration my attitude 
I must rely on my instruments because my body will tend to tell me I'll start feeling as though I'm going down, I'm going down, or I'm going up, and I'm starting to push the yoke forward to, to level off. And in reality, I'm not going any of those places. But in my mind, I feel as though I am. I feel like up, I'm going up and therefore need to push down. And what I'm saying to you is just as the pilot needs to obey his instruments, place his faith and trust in them, you need to place your faith and trust in the Word of God, not in the way you feel, because it alone has authority. Your feelings do not. Fourthly, not only must I submit by exposing myself to its truth, by examining my convictions, and by submitting my experience to it, but this is the part that hurts. I must exemplify its truth. What does that mean? It means I've got to live it out and obey it. You know what we become in Christian circles is we become hearers of the Word and not doers. You know what a hearer is? It's someone, the word, the Greek word for hearer is the same word we get audit from. When you audit a class, what do you do? You go in there because you want to, right? You go in there because you've asked that professor, hey, I'd like to get exposed to the truth of this class or the, the information. And I'm going to go in there and you may take notes, not because you're accountable on a test, but because you want to know the data, right? That's what auditing is. You pay a fee to go listen to someone else without responsibility. Well, that's what James says we need to avoid. We need to avoid just going in and listening and taking notes and shaking our head and saying, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. You know, a lot of you are saying, yes, I agree. But you know what? That's not enough. It's not enough to say you agree. You've got to apply it in your life. No more lip service if you're a submitter to the authority of Scripture. You know, we, we say, I'm going to submit my life by committing myself unreservedly to the worship of God. And we heard that so appropriately stated on Wednesday. And in my heart I say, I will, I will, but unless I do, I have not submitted. You may say, I read those verses in 1 Thessalonians that talk about, this is the will of God concerning me, even my sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And all of you would agree with me and shake your head that immorality is wrong. That defrauding another is wrong. That I'm required to be holy. And we're all saying, yes, I agree, but how come it is then that a lot of us go out on a Friday or Saturday night and we do those things which are in direct contradiction to the Word, which we're supposed to be submitted to because true submission is not just shaking my head yes it's doing it all day long all night long wherever I am whatever circumstance true submission is doing what the word says to do not just hearing it that's why James says don't be hearers of the word only but be doers that you might not deceive yourself it's a great deception we have in Christian circles we say yes I agree but we don't do I want to say to you as master's college students, would you agree with me that our commitment is that because the Bible is the chief means to advancing the kingdom of God, which is our purpose, not only because our purpose statement says it, but because the word requires it, and not only because the, God, the Bible has authority because its author does, because he has the power to enforce commands, and because he's an expert, 
Would you agree with me that because all these things are true and the Bible has authority that we must do these things? Must expose ourselves? Must examine ourselves in light of its truth? We must submit our experience to it? And gang, we've got to obey it. Because everything else is a farce and a lie. It doesn't matter what I say. It matters what God says via His Word. Turn with me in closing to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus asked a profound question when He was queried about the authority upon which John the Baptist ministered. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 and when Jesus had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said to Jesus, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question Jesus asked of the Pharisees and the chief priests. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Notice their line of reasoning in verse 25. If we say, they said among themselves, reasoning, if we say from heaven, then he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? I want to say to you, the scriptures are from what source? from heaven or from men. And if they're from heaven, then at least exercise the wisdom that the scribes acknowledged by believing in them, by obeying them. The scriptures, we are submitted to their authority because they're from God. If they're from heaven and if they're from Him, then let us submit to their authority. Let us pray.